You're listening to the Functional Nerds Podcast with your hosts, Patrick Hester and Tracy Townsend. Welcome back, friends. Please make sure your pod seats and tray tables are in their full, upright, and locked position. The airlock has been sealed and docking clamps have been released for an on-time departure to the functional nerdverse. How are we doing this week, nerdlings? How you doing, Patrick? Well, as I'm sitting here and I start hitting things on my desk and making noise and that I'm going yeah, to well, that's, you know, remove, it's just, yeah. It's peak 2022 at this. Yeah. It's only the second episode of the year, so you gotta you got to give me a minute to catch up again. Right, you have to remember how the whole thing is done. It's like it's like that business where you don't remember what year to put on your checks for a while. Of course, it presumes that people write checks any longer as well. It's funny because you and I have had plenty of conversations where I've said, Tracy, we don't have to record every single week. Like we don't have to put out fifty-two episodes a week, and that was something that was really hard for you to accept. Well, you know, I sure you're like, well, no, there's fifty-two weeks in the year. I've got to make my syllabus for the entire year. We've got to have this whole thing, right? But the side of that is when we do take a break it's like what the fuck i don't want to get started again <laughs> no it's like it's 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 exactly that sort of thing and perhaps our, our guest has some perspective on that as well um with some background in university and so on um but i i, I know that after a break because i'm about to next week be teaching again after being off for about three weeks after a break whether it's summer or, or winter or what have you i come back with a definite feeling of like the hell am i doing how does this work? There's so many of them. Like they're gonna they're gonna catch on that I don't know what I'm doing. It's gonna be bad, so bad. And so I mean, then again, it could be entirely possible that Dr. Lorraine Wilson is far better um, in her various <laughs> pursuits than I have ever been, and I would be happy to concede that ground. Lorraine, how are you? I'm grand. Thank you very much. Thank you for having me. So, where are you calling? It's not exactly a call. I guess Zencaster is kind of a call, right? Kind of is that call. language we could use? Yeah, kind sort of. That'll good. do. So we, we've been doing um, quite a job in the last year or so of going international. So where are you joining us from, Lorraine? I am in Fife in Scotland. So I am quite near the sea, near St Andrews, which a lot of people might have heard of because of princes and golf and that kind golf. of stuff. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> but yeah, very near St Andrews by the sea in Scotland. That's fantastic. So, I, I, I was just gonna throw it out there. I work yeah, for a yeah. company that teaches people how to play golf. So, oh really? Oh, I do. Yeah, yeah. but I'm, the I'm, Holy Grail. I, I used to be in marketing. Now I'm in sort of the IT software development side. So I don't actually have to teach people how to play golf, but that's that's like the basis of what the company's all about. But you are part of the curse. Yes, it's golf. <laughs> <laughs> Wait, there's a curse? Like, like are, are the people of Fife like quietly resentful of golf culture? I, I rely upon you, of course, to speak for the people of Fife I in do, their entirety. I do. I speak for every single yes person in Fife. No, well, no. There's a certain kind of wry contempt, perhaps, for, <laughs> for the people who come over and spend an awful lot of money for their one round of golf on the old course in St Andrews. It's like um, modified tourism. Yeah. yeah, it's a very specialised form of tourism. And I think we all feel a little sense of um, very cruel, masochistic glee when their <laughs> their booked session on the old course happens to coincide with like horizontal hail and stuff. And they go out anyway because they've been booked for a year yep. and, and everybody expensive. mocks yeah. them. It's, yeah. it's like a, it's, it's a destination Exactly. They've yeah, got a ticket off lots on that of those. Day. Yeah, yeah. St Andrews is is becomes a uh, oh, it's a goal. 
for a lot of people mm-hmm. who get into golf. I have never been into golf that much. Like I'm fine playing at the nine hole golf course near the airport. That's got the apartments around it. <laughs> and, you know, hearing my ball hit the aluminum carport roof as I'm, <laughs> as I'm slicing left that's and right. Satisfying. And, yeah. 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 That, that, that's, that's mine. You know, like I'm, I'm fine with that. I'm wicked. Plus good it only costs golf. like 20 bucks. Yeah. So See, you can't, you can't go on for like $20 versus I'm going to spend 10 grand for a trip to St. Andrews. Mm, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. That's not happening. I've never played. I don't feel a particular compulsion to play, but um, if, if you do yeah. get bored, um, a great thing to look up on YouTube is Robin Williams oh, talking right. about how golf was invented oh that is the funniest damn thing ever it's <laughs> hilarious okay i will look that up i think it would have to come with the proviso of of you know asking a scot to quietly bear robin williams's scot accent though it's, it's sort of that's that's now, part of I, the the fine print there <laughs> I, I know i said i wasn't feeling well i'm not and then i was kind of going to be quiet but i'm not uh, you, you told us in the green room that one of your cats was named Ginny. Uh-huh. And that you have three cats? Yeah. Are the other the two Ron? The others aren't called Harry and Ron. No. I was going to say, are they Ron and Harry? No, they're not. Ginny was named after Ginny. So she is, he, well, he is a, we thought she he was a she, but she he's not. He's a she. Yeah. No? Oh, God, I'm so confused. You would not just gender, gender and cat. It's fine. With, yeah. yeah with, they're gender fluid. It's, it's, yeah. It is what it is. Yeah, His brother's called much. Lila. And mm. that was just, I don't know where Lila came from. And then Marley is um, uh, Bob Marley. Ah, oh, the name of go. my Bob Marley cat. So, yeah. So three Hopefully beasts. the chillest of the bunch. He is ridiculously chill, actually. It's, it's very much, he is in that whole vibe. He definitely absorbed the name. He's a ridiculously <laughs> dopey cat. That's wonderful. Yeah. <laughs> So at this point, the listeners are probably like, while I love cats and golf, um, what is even <laughs> That's happening not what now? we signed up for. And I, do, I mean, I, I, on the one hand, if they are longtime listeners or particularly patrons, I mean, honestly, you, you do know that this is, in fact, what you signed up for. Um, yep. Yeah, so there's there's that. But also, we, we, we have the wonderful opportunity to talk to you about your debut novel, This Is Our Undoing, but also there's just been news that has come out that um, your next novel has been picked up by your by your publisher as well. So yeah. you're published by Luna Press, uh, Scottish yeah. Independent Press, and mm-hmm. now you have one, one book out in the world and one soon to be coming in this new mm. year. So talk to us about yes. your work. Well, yeah. So the first one was called This Is Our Undoing, and that's a kind of dystopian thriller sort of thing and it's it's set in a near future Europe in the mountains of Bulgaria and it's in a future that's kind of affected by climate change and the rise of far-right politics and it's it's about how to how the, the individual choices you make the small choices you make matter even when you feel incredibly disempowered when the the society around you is getting more and more divisive or hate-filled you're you can it can feel futile to do anything and that book was kind of me trying to tell myself that those choices those small decisions you make do still matter yeah. so 
that's and it's about um, it follows a scientist called Lena who has created a life for herself in this wilderness in the mountains but her dangerous past comes back to haunt her when an old enemy is murdered and her family's in danger and there's all sorts of secrets and dangerous stuff going on in in the forest in this this wilderness setting so yeah it's it's dark and dramatic but very much about Lena trying to find a way to stay true to her own morals whilst also protecting her family and mm-hmm. wrestling with the question of what you might be willing to do how how bad you will be be willing to come become to uh protect your family so that's that one wow which, and then and then the second one is very very different i haven't i haven't mastered this whole trick of actually writing in one genre so the second one is very much a dark fantasy and it's called the way the light bends and it's based in scotland and full of scottish folklore and it's about two sisters whose brother has died and they are both in their own very very different ways very lost because of that and when one of the sisters goes missing the other tries to find her but they are effectively estranged so it's it's sort of a journey through sisterhood and the the way that family can both hurt us and heal us and it's full of the dark side of scottish folklore so well if it makes you feel any better i'm i'm a fan of of authors trying different genres i i don't like the whole stick stay in your swim lane thing that tends to happen in publishing yeah it's i think it's um it might be a headache for marketers perhaps to have an author that jumps around a bit but for me i i think all my stories start from the same kind of foundation set of themes but they branch off in different directions i never write thinking of what genre is this book going to be it's just about what themes that it has at its core sure so yeah they end up all over the place but that's not my problem that's a problem for somebody else <laughs> i think there's something to be said though for one of the benefits of writing across multiple different genres is even if there's not always a lot of overlap between people who think of themselves as a reader of genre A and, and also of genre B, if they discover you because of your work in genre A and they'd say, you know what, you know what, I, I like Lorraine Wilson. I like what she does with characters and ideas and how she's challenging me and what she's pulling together here, that if they're willing to follow you to the next project, then you've functionally expanded your reach there anyway. And so I think there's, if, if it's something that you can pull off, then I think you keep getting to do it. You know, the reason I think that the marketers balk a little bit is they're, they're always, I think a little bit worried that readers don't see the person that readers just sort of see the narrative. And I, I think that there are more readers who see the, the, the person at behind the narrative and kind of get excited by that than, than maybe we give them credit for. Yeah, I think so. I mean, I read across genres, and I think most people do, really. Mm-hmm. So the idea of having to limit your writing to one genre has never struck me as particularly necessary. I mean, some people do, and they love it, and they only ever write within one genre, and that's their passion, and that's fine. Mm-hmm. But I don't. I think as a doing it as a career choice rather than as a love is is weird. wouldn't Wouldn't sit comfortably with me. Yeah. Yeah. Well, there's that old saying too about write what you know, which I think it tends to get interpreted too narrowly as well. But in your case, you know, the, with the first book that this is our undoing, the write what you know seems to be coming in the the ecologist 
um, yeah. you know, main <laughs> character. And in the second book, the one that we'll be we'll be seeing in the summer of 2022, it seems to be coming out of your homeland. And and these are, you know, they're drawing, they're still drawing off of you, but they're drawing in very different ways. And I'm I'm really interested in in the ecology piece there because it uh-huh. seems like there's this rising tide of texts in SF where we're more and more willing to look at what's happening to the environment as being a real source of dramatic tension and, and of plot and not just as sort of like the background dressing. Yeah, I think so. I think we're getting to the point where to completely ignore climate change is an act of fantasy in itself now. So, and I think SFF has always been a genre that looks forward and looks at for answers to difficult questions and one of the most difficult questions we're facing right now is climate change right and and what's going to happen and what we're doing about it or not doing about it so I think SFF is is kind of the obvious genre to look to for the way that we are expressing our concerns about that and the way that we're exploring our fears so yeah it feels very natural to me to have that in my writing I mean even if it's not a big theme, like in my second book, The Way the Light Bends, there are climate extremes happening, but it's not really a theme in the story. Whereas in This Is Our Undoing, it's very definitely a theme. And I think both approaches are are useful because, because that's our reality now. And, and we need to be able to explore it both emotionally and logically, I think. There's the question as well as, I think, far-right politics, you mentioned, as being sort of yeah. a, <laughs> the backdrop of far-right politics. And yeah. um, the UK has certainly been going through its moment. Yeah. I talk about like its moment as if it's as if it's just like this one pinprick in time. We've been going through a saga. Um, we are. Its, we still are. Own. Yep. Yeah. In much the same way that America has been going through something of a saga over, I think, longer than it has maybe wanted to admit um, yeah. it's been going on for us. It's just become very visible in, in the last few years. I don't know to how thinking again, like this is it's, it's SFF it's, it's so-called escapism, but it's also the reality and the sort of world in which we're swimming. Like how, how does the climate change and the climate threat and the far right politics sort of interact in, in the fiction in your mind? I think the thing with books is, yeah, they're escapism and people like to be taken out of their own world, but they're also a way of exploring our fears and the unknowns. And that's always, you know, going back to folklore, folklore and mythology were ways of exploring the unknown and providing kind of routes through danger and Mm -hmm. rules that will get you through danger. And I think that, I mean, I'm very influenced by folklore, but I think that SFF has the same pattern to it, a lot of SFF, where it's, you know, you're looking at dystopias or whatever, and it's ways of exploring our own fear and are ways of saying, okay, given this set of circumstances, what do people do? How might people react and how might I react as an individual in those settings? And I think, I think that can be, it can be dystopian and it can be very grim and a bit depressing and, and the setting of my world isn't particularly joyous but I I think you you kind of look for the hope in it and you look for the the question of okay the world looks very dark but how do you find you know the positive way forward and the the light and the empowerment sense of you know sense of um, ability to make change 
and I think that fiction has a lot of power in that regard. I think it's something that a lot of people look to and we shouldn't underestimate the value of what we create as fiction writers. You know, and I say that coming as someone who used to actually do peer-reviewed science in conservation and I'm not sure that that was any more useful in the grander scheme than the, the fiction. I think they're both just as important. Well, I mean, it, it kind of comes down to the question of readership, right? You can have really well-researched information about what's happening to our world and what impact we have on it and so on. But if it's not being read by people who have the ability to make decisions that change trajectories or being valued by those people, then, I mean, it comes down to audience time and time and time again. And SFF, I think, has over time gotten a bigger and bigger and bigger and bigger audience. Like it's more and more... You know, the narrative that for I, I teach a speculative fiction studies class in the spring, so I'm about to jump back into it in the next week or so. And the narrative that I always used to begin the course with is the idea like SFF is this fringe thing, that it's like outside of the mainstream. It's not really true anymore. Like it's it's become much more no. entertainment central. You know, we, we were joking with each other that last week's episode, the picks of the week that we all came up with, each one of us, uh, Patrick and our guest, uh, Nicole Glover and myself, we each named something that was a Disney property. And putting aside for a moment that what that says about the stranglehold of Disney on entertainment, <laughs> like they were all very sf though. They were all very much part of that world. And the reason why Disney ran out and gobbled up Marvel and ran out and gobbled up Star Wars and ran out and gobbled up the Jim Henson workshop is because that's what people seem to be responding to um, that has become more and more sort of normalized to, to look at things and through that sort of readership. So maybe you're on to well, something here, Dr. Wilson. <laughs> maybe if the peer reviewed scholarship isn't getting the eyeballs, then maybe this. And what I would well, throw out there though is hold on the, the, what you're talking about mm. is that um, it's also how you consume it, right? It's how you consume it. Yes. Yeah, definitely. And I think, I mean, scientists, obviously, the science is there and it's incredibly important that we keep on doing that and keep on furthering it and all the rest of it. But it's it's only there if people go out and look for it and want to read it and want to seek to understand it. And whereas fiction is, is so much more accessible and it's so much more, um, it, it tunes into people's emotions much more readily than yeah. news reports do. Sure. Mm-hmm. Um, so, yeah, I think it's incredibly powerful. And I think like talking about SFF moving into the mainstream, you see that in fiction as well as the media, I think, with more sort of the book club books and the, you know, the reading group books um, mm-hmm. having SFF speculative elements in them, which I think is fantastic. And they tend yeah, to not get yeah. marketed as SFF, but they are. You know, if you it look is- at things like The Binding, Bridget Collins is The Binding and mm. stuff like that, which are very fantastical. Well, you think of um, thinking also of um, authors of some some like literary accomplishment. I think of like Kazuo Ishiguro. You know, a few years yeah. ago he had the Buried Giant, and some years before that there was Never Let Me Go. And no. these are indisputably SF null texts. They just are. One of them is like they a are. school for cloned people who are <laughs> spare body parts. Spoiler, um, and the other is. A fantasy with a yeah, with a yeah. For, with a forgetfulness gas breathing dragon um, that is loosely based in early Saxon, you know, or I guess pre-Saxon history. Um, but 
the, the what was sort of funny to me is in the same way as um, like the book club sphere has sort of um, been, I don't know, um, infiltrated, I guess, by SFL stuff. A <laughs> little bit, little bit infiltrated. Yeah. Um, and like you mentioned, there's they're often not marketed along the, those lines. There continues to be a sort of disappointing lean, I think, amongst some authors of trying to distance themselves from the idea of being connected to, to SFF. Um, like there are so many interviews that Ishiguro has given where he has solidly maintained that the buried giant is not fantasy. Um, it is not in any way fantasy. Um, he doesn't even describe it as magical realism. Like he's just really wanting to wash his hands of the whole deal. Um, and uh, that, that, Never let me go is not science fiction, and just there's there's there seems to be a real fear of the geek stink um, that I yeah. think is unfortunate because it it's perpetuating the less useful parts of the way we kind of break down our understanding of genre and our understanding of readerships and stuff. And it, it, I think it going back to what Patrick said a minute ago, it changes what people think of consuming things because they think of consuming something as having all sets of sort of like sociological burdens that it doesn't necessarily yeah. have to have. Well, there's still yeah. a stigma. There's still a stigma on science fiction in, in books and sure. science fiction in movies and television shows. It's like there, there, that, that gets shoved off into a corner. Right. Mm -hmm. And, mm -hmm. and people go, Oh no, they, they want to, they want to break out of the science fiction mold in order to appeal to a broader audience. So if they can if they can get away with calling an Anne Rice novel literature instead of horror, that's better for them. Same thing with Stephen King. It's not horror. It's literature because literature is more, you know, snooty. Yeah, it is. It's a snobbery. It's definitely yeah. a kind of elitism thing. And it's used as a way of shutting the door in the face of certain types of stories as well, I think. Although that's a slightly different tangent. But it's definitely... Um, it's just so silly. The whole term literary bugs me because it's such a elitist term. It's so mm -hmm. deliberately deliberately exclusionary. Mm -hmm. And there's it's a it's a measure of the approach to prose, not a subject. So you can have literary within any genre. Mm -hmm. It's not something that's separate from genre at all. And it annoys me that people like Kazuo Ishiguro um, insist on seeing literary as being separate from what they're actually writing which has dragons in <laughs> yeah yeah i mean at, at a certain point we're just describing a bunch of toolboxes yeah um, and and then people are, are building toolkits that get them to and through the stories they want to tell and in the same way that i i'm speaking a little bit out of turn here because i know absolutely dick about tools like none <laughs> not a thing <laughs> like but it would be, I guess, a little bit, I mean, I suppose there's tool elitism, like the DeWalt people give a side eye to Ryobi people in the, in the cordless <laughs> drill world. Uh, listeners, please weigh in on this if if you can. Um, uh, this is clearly something I need the record set straight on. But it does feel a little bit like, you know, if, if you knew that you needed to use a wrench or with with respect to our guest, a spanner. Um, for a particular <laughs> for a particular task versus needing a screwdriver, you wouldn't be upset about the presence of a screwdriver in your bag of tools. You'd say, "Well, this is the thing that I need. This is this is the tool that makes sense to use for this application." But um, we don't tend to view tools in the, the with the same sort of like creative and emotional stakes. We view them as these like objects. Um, 
Yeah, yeah, I, I think... and that's like going back to you know what I said about not writing to a particular genre. I think you should you should write what suits the heart of your story, and if that's one genre or another, or if that's more literary or more commercial in prose style, then that that is what it is. That's what suits the story, and there's no better or worse for any of that. And I think the moment people start to see one thing as being better than another, and particularly one genre as being better than another genre, you're just on a hiding to nothing. It's just it's um yeah you're missing out you're depriving <laughs> yourself of stuff it, it, it's something that that Anilio, the former co-host and i used to argue about all the time with music a good song is a good song mm-hmm. right it doesn't matter if someone covers the song for country or if someone covers the song for rock or for pop or something a good song is still a good song oh you just said that, that you argued about it though so are you describing his take or yours no, I mean we would we would argue because I I would be like I can't believe that I like this cover of this song from this band in this genre um, that I, I don't listen to. <laughs> I see. And he would go, "Well, a good song's a good song." Gotcha. It doesn't matter who covers it. You know, a good song is a good song. And yeah. and that that was kind of the 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 argument part of it. Mm-hmm. But it, it's the same it's like a good book, a good story is a good story. It doesn't yeah. matter really what genre gets slapped on it. It's one of the things that I, I used to love about Angry Robot is that they would put suggested genre categories on the back, you know, and it was basically for the benefit of the, the book person at the bookstore as to where to shelve it. But it was also mm-hmm. for the person, you know, flipping the back of the book and looking at it and going, oh, well, this is, this is a thriller and it's science fiction and it, kind of fits in horror and it kind of fits in climate change and like there'd be a bunch of things on there to mm-hmm. kind of give you an idea rather than just this is science fiction almost like search terms yeah. yeah 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 so yeah, like you know I, I used to like that yeah i think that's really good and mm-hmm. that's um i guess that's the problem with physical bookstores is that there has to be a place on a bookshelf where a book sits yeah so yeah. they make a call one way or the other don't they or, yes, or even online, and, yeah, like that. The, what and, they what yeah. they sort of link you to is your sort of like search discovery terms and so on. And yeah. from a sales point standpoint, they they see it as if it's again, if it's if it's on the shelf marked literature, it's more likely to sell to a broader audience than if it's on the science fiction shelf. Yeah. Which is sad. Okay, so it this is. this takes me back to your work here, Lorraine. Now I'm now I'm really curious because I remember vividly um, the the excitement of the day that my first book was up on Amazon. My publisher had put it there, and I'm like, I'm going to I'm a real girl now, and all that, right? <laughs> and so I went and I I was interested to see what what the entry for it looked like, and of course, as part of it, they have all the subcategories that it's linked to, so that they can rank you as being like eighty billionth in sales for whatever this thing is right and it was fascinating to me to look at the i think they get three categories they get to put your your book into um the three buckets they put me in because they were just not the buckets i would have thought like if you had if you'd given me the list or i don't know what i would have chosen but i don't think i would have chosen those three and i i remember looking at that and having this real moment of sitting back within myself as a writer and going do I understand my own work the way, do they get it better than I do? Or is this, is this a bad thing or a good thing? Or is this a thing? Or so, oh, I'm wondering, it's have tactics you, it, as well. Right. So I'm wondering, There's, so when Luna Press has, has put your work out into the world, have they tagged it, labeled it in ways that you found interesting or enlightening? 
to, just um, even as the author? I think I'm trying to think what categories it's in on like Amazon and such places. Yeah. It's in, in things like um, sci-fi or dark fantasy or speculative mm. and stuff like that, which because it is a bit of a genre blender, blending book, the first one, um, I wouldn't know exactly what category to put it in. So I just call it speculative usually. Right. Um, but Amazon, I think it's it's a bit of a game. You have people play with Amazon as well, categories. You try and put it into quite an obscure subcategory so that you can so get you a higher ranking. quickly rise the number one yeah. seller. Of, yeah. So there's a degree to which sometimes those categories mean absolutely nothing. It's the just a game that publishers are playing. murder, mystery, cozy, yeah. starring Colorado Rockies fans. <laughs> literally came up only because of Patrick's hat. <laughs> yeah. Oh. And then it gets put into random categories as well, sometimes depending on keywords that reviewers have flagged up. Mm. So like mine has, mine has been put into um, transgender erotica because it has a nine-year-old transgender child in, Whoa. Um, which is, yeah, that, I is, know. A, it's a that is a bit problematic odd. bucket. Right there. Exactly. <laughs> so that's a few reviewers flagging up the transgender child and it's got lumped into this erotica category, which has quite a few red flags going on there for oh. somewhere in the process. Oh no. But um but there we go. <laughs> well, I don't care. I'm in some good company. There's all sorts of books that have been put in that bracket, so I don't care. <laughs> oh good. Like you maybe you can get together with those authors at some point and have a drink and be like, so <laughs> what brought you here? <laughs> exactly. Oh man. I feel like we need a bit of a palate cleanser after that. There was a there was a bit there was a bit of a thing. Are we ready Sorry, for picks no of the week? Not. Do we think? No, no, we're good. We're good. <laughs> yes, we can do picks of the week. Yes. Picks of the week. All right. So if, we know if, Lorraine's going to pick St Andrews and the old. Yes, court, clearly. So. Um, <laughs> yeah. My love of golf. That or Bob Marley. Yeah. <laughs> So, um, with picks of the week, I, um, this was already my pick before I sat down to kind of pull together my show notes and stuff today. And, um, then when I realized the way that everything was sort of lining up, I was like, oh no, this is perfect. It's, this is, this is a perfect pick, not just because I love it a lot, but because of Lorraine as well. Um, so my pick of the week was one of my Christmas gifts. Uh, we are a very gamesy household as folks who listen know, and, um, we always tend to get a lot of new board games in the house around Christmas and uh, Husbeast ended up buying me one called Cascadia. Uh, Cascadia, as you can guess, is named for the Cascadia mountain range uh, in North America. And it is a territory building game where you get tiles with different sorts of ecological niches on them. There's marshlands and prairie and mountains and uh, rivers and forests and so on. And based on the types of wildlife that can be supported on those different tiles, uh, you draw tiles and you draw wildlife markers and you're trying to build uh, an ecological habitat that can support a wide variety of different creatures that allow you, depending on how you arrange your habitat, to score points differently. Um, and what's really cool about it is the replayability on it is super high because while there are 
five different animal types that you're trying to find habitat arrangements for. There's four different versions of each animal. So for instance, like brown bear is one of them, but you can play with a version card of the brown bear, in which case you score points on brown bears if there are two brown bears adjacent to each other as a mated pair with no other brown bears around. And that's the only way you could, or you could do it if they're like, there's two brown bears, but they're in line of sight of another two. Um, and so there's different ways as you get really good at scoring out the animals in one particular deck of cards, you can switch to the B deck of cards and the C and the D and the E and so on. And that gives you the ability to kind of remaster the game uh, for different players. You wouldn't even necessarily, you could mix up the different types of cards so that now you're using this type of red tail hawk versus that type of red tail hawk. Um, and it's really fun. Uh, the game is rated for ages 13 and up, but my precocious 10-year-old has already <laughs> whooped my ass in it twice. Um, so clearly, that's not a limit. Uh, so I recommend checking out Cascadia if you're looking for a game that scales really well and has lots of replay. Nice. That sounds ace. I'll have to have a look. All right. So Lorraine, Patrick, who's next? Lorraine. Oh, God. Um, I don't know. You mentioned earlier on, and I nearly squealed when you said it, but I didn't. You mentioned that your previous guest was Nicole Glover. Yes. Um, yes. I would just like to say I love her books. They're oh, just, good. They were one of my best reads, those two books, um, The Conductors and The Undertakers from last year. I just loved them. They're so much fun. So that was, I had a little fan moment when you mentioned her name. Um, but, oh, gosh, I don't know. I would Talking of games, I would, I guess I've had um, a blast over the holidays playing Mahjong with my daughter um, nice. and we've not played it before and we're, we're utterly inept and anybody who plays it properly would be absolutely appalled at us, but we're having such a fun time with it and we love the tiles and we both try desperately to collect the dragons even when we're on an absolute hiding to nothing and all the dragons are already <laughs> laid down in the discards, we still want them because they're dragons. Um, yeah. So that's been immense fun. That's yeah. That would possibly. Are you, are you be playing that with physical tiles, or are you playing it as yeah. a video game? Oh, you're doing yeah. physical tiles. No, we, wow. we got a, I got a set. I'd always wanted to know how to play it, um, yeah. and I still don't. But I'm having fun, <laughs> kind of playing about a third of the rules, probably, possibly even less. <laughs> I went to like a that's mahjong awesome. workshop with my mother-in-law once uh, when we were on vacation together. And it was the most bewildering and humbling three hours of my life um, because there were these like octogenarian women around who were explaining this fairly elaborate set of rules. And I, I was pretty sure I understood games. And she was explaining these things to me. And then I would do like one thing and they would all just like shriek at me like a collection of banshees. And um, it was it was transparently obvious to them that I had only ever played Mahjong as a simple find the matches in the pile of crap on a Windows uh, screen with, with a mouse before. And that was not to be born. They were, they were very yeah. disappointed by me. <laughs> it's an amazing game. It's fascinating. But uh, I, would, I would hate to expose my current talents to somebody who can actually play it properly. <laughs> I'd probably make them weep. <laughs> All right. That's still awesome, though. <laughs> yeah it's fun <laughs> i'm gonna go in a, a completely different direction i actually had this as uh ready as a pick for uh a, a guest that 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 was not to be unfortunately uh because i just thought it'd be fun to to talk about a movie uh with this particular guest but uh i i like randomly found this movie i don't even remember how i found it but it's called the swordsman 
Okay. And this is a this is a South Korean kind of martial arts film. Mm-hmm. Uh, we have to do subtitles. I don't like subtitles. Usually, like this, the, there's like certain things that you tick off on this that that are are normally turnoffs for me. Because what ends up happening is when the subtitles are happening, I'm paying attention to the subtitles and I miss whatever is happening in the in the movie itself. But I was able to do this. It was really, really good. And uh, it, I cannot pronounce any of the names of any of the stars <laughs> of this show or this movie. But it was it's a 2020 South Korean martial arts film. It's about a swordsman who... Uh, there's like a rebellion and he is, he's like the last one that's standing against the rebellion uh, of the King. And this is in the very opening moments of the film. He is, he is partially blinded during a, a sword fight with a, another guy. And you fast forward a decade or more, and he's living in the mountains with his, his teenage daughter and he's still partially blind. Like his eyesight comes and goes. And it's basically because flecks of metal got into his eye. And uh, he's, he's content to live in the mountains. She is not, right? She wants to, she wants to be out in the world and, and actually, you know, talk to other people that's not her dad and all this kind of stuff. And uh, meanwhile, there is a, uh, there is this force of, slavers coming over from china uh that have like the support of the the royal family in china because one of them is like a distant cousin and they're they're coming to like uh extort money and and steal people and and sell them as slaves and uh they grab his daughter and so the whole thing is like the revenge thing it's like i'm gonna get my daughter back right and here south korean swordsman taken yeah and oh, I, I mean, it's some of the best. Like, I, I, I can't even describe it. It's just some of the best martial arts I've seen in a really, really long time. And very, wow. very pretty. Very, very yeah. cinematic. And you see this guy, like he's walking around with a cane, mm-hmm. and he just starts fighting people with canes, with his cane, and they're just staring at him like, "Who the fuck are you? How are you doing this with a cane? And aren't you blind?" <laughs> and then, it, and then it turns out like the cane is actually a, a, a sheath and, and holds the the shattered piece of his sword that got broken, and mm-hmm. he he uses that, and, and it's all about you know him trying to get his daughter back, and it's just it was really really good. I was blown away by how good this movie was. So the swordsman, oh, wow. South Korean martial arts flick, it's out there. Go check it out. Awesome. Wow. Yeah. All right. Well, that. That that whole recommendation thing was a journey, right? There. <laughs> from point A to point point Q, pretty quick. All right, so we want to make sure that in the same way that you were delighted to discover that we just talked to Nicole Glover, that people can be delighted to have heard of you and to to share the good news with people. So, Lorraine, where can people find you and your work and all of the great stuff you're doing? So, I am on Twitter at um, rain underscore clouds. That's rain with an e on the end r-a-i-n-e underscore clouds and that's where i am most so you can come and find me there but i'm also on uh instagram and i have a website called um shadows on water at wordpress so come and find me come chat to me i always love hearing from people and my books are on amazon well my book my second book isn't yet my book is on amazon and um 
Barnes and Noble, I believe. I haven't checked. I meant to check before speaking to you guys. Yes. Haven't done the whole where is it in America thing. Yeah. But it's definitely on Amazon and definitely from um, uh, the book depository as well, the worldwide yes. shipping. Fantastic. So. All right. Well, it's been awesome chatting with you, Lorraine. Thanks so much. Thank you. It's been great fun. Happy New Year. And that means it's time for a new bumper. I've got a couple of extra things for you before we close out the episode. First, Tracy and I will be at Capricorn 42, February 3rd through the 6th in Chicago. Capricorn 42 will be held in person at the Sheraton Grand Chicago Hotel. We're talking about doing some sort of hangout. And as soon as we get that locked down, I'll let you know they've not locked in the schedule yet. Uh, but I think they're getting really close. So we'll let you know as soon as we do. For more information about Capricorn 42, please visit capricorn.org. In the meantime, you should check out Beyond the Trope, a great podcast run by some pretty awesome people. Giles and Michelle have been putting out episodes regularly for over seven years. They have a lot of great guests, just like we do, and have a lot of fun, just like we do. I think you'll like them. Go check them out at beyondthetrope.com. You're still listening, aren't you?